Alrighty. Good morning. What a privilege to be back with you this morning. So my dear friends, we have reached the mountaintop of Mark's gospel. So we've journeyed higher and higher and we finally reached the peak of our Mount Everest. And so I want to remind you of what we looked at last week. Four different scenes. We saw Jesus initially carrying the cross but being unable to finish because he was so fatigued and exhausted from the Roman scourging. And so Simon of Cyrene had to help. We saw the Romans offering Jesus wine mixed with myrrh and Jesus rejecting it so he could fully and finally experience what it takes to save us. We read about the people stripping him and dividing his garments and two insurrectionists being crucified on the right and left, and the religious leaders and others mocking him. And so the question before us this morning is, how much is left? (laughs) How much of this can we endure together? And so this morning we will look at the four final scenes in the death of Christ. And our job this morning is to take it for what it is, to face the facts, to reckon with the awesome reality of what God has decided to do to save us. One writer said, Evil engulfed Jesus on the cross, and we should not try to relieve the stark picture with misguided sentimentality. And so, beloved, now isn't the time to be glib when we think about what happened at Golgotha. And we all know that difficult things, awful things, terrible things can do immeasurable good, don't we? Years ago, I was off work, and it just so happened to be uh, a day when Addie needed to go to the doctor, and Valerie asked me to go. Um, She was due from some shots, um, and they were drawing blood. And there's a reason why Valerie takes the kids to the doctor, and not me, all right? She's like a steel magnolia, and I wilt. And so I agreed to go, and I recalled the doctor sitting me and Addie down, and... You know, she went through this long spiel about how to hold her, what to do if something went wrong, the needles, where the needle's going to go, and why this terrible moment is necessary to do a lot of good. And I remember turning to Addie and saying, did you hear all that? And the doctor said, oh, no, Daddy, that was all for you. You're about to struggle watching this, and we need your steady hands. Uh, and, And struggle, I did. I hated it, and it was straight up awful. Um, but it did a lot of good. And we know this to be true in a thousand other ways. Dark, evil, and horrific things can bring about a lot of good. And we are about to see the chief example of that, of something horrendous that accomplishes something absolutely beautiful, the cross of Christ. And so with that being said, let's look at Mark chapter 15, 33 through 39. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring you one. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 and 39. God's word says this. And when the sixth hour had come, that's 12 p.m., there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? 
And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. Verse 36. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Let's go to the Son of God and pray. Father, we are, we are unworthy of this moment. Unworthy of this salvation-accomplishing reality. And yet, here we stand. And so, Lord, as we go up this mountain peak, Lord, help us to see it rightly. Help us to see you and what you've done for us and our salvation, Lord. Help us not to check out because we've heard this all before. And so, God, we know your word does not return void, but it creates realities. And it makes thorn bushes turn into juniper trees. And it brings living water in deserts. And so, Lord, we pray as we look at your word this morning that you would do all that and so much more. Encourage your people and make others your people. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So let's look at these scenes together. Scene five, starting from last week. Scene five is darkness covers the land. Darkness covers the land. Look back at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Three whole hours of utter darkness as Jesus is being crucified. And so the question before us is, why did it become dark? What's going on? And Scripture gives us some clues this morning. Uh, Scripture often associates darkness with mourning. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 4. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, and I have not relented, nor will I turn back. And so darkness is associated with mourning. But moreover, Scripture associates darkness with judgment. Think about the Exodus and the ten plagues. And the ninth plague was darkness covering the land for three whole days. Jesus Dark for three hours. Listen to Exodus 10, 21 and how Moses describes the darkness. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward a heaven that there may be a darkness over the land, a darkness to be felt. And so a darkness, darkness is associated with mourning. Darkness is associated with judgment. Darkness is associated with the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is when God would show up in judgment, in wrath, and in righteousness to fix pressing problems. Listen to Amos chapter 8 right here. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. And so what's being communicated in this moment by darkness? We ought to mourn over this moment. 
And we need to recognize that God is not happy with what sinful man is doing to his precious son. And he lets it be known by blotting out the son as his son's life is ebbing away. But be certain of this. Don't think for a moment that God is absent just because it's dark. God is very present. He's present in wrath. And so scene five is darkness covers the land. Scene six, Jesus cries out in agony. Jesus cries out in agony. Listen to verse 34 again. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabbathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. What does Jesus cry out? And so Jesus isn't just experiencing physical darkness around him. He feels spiritual darkness creep into his very inner life, his soul. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabbathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark Strauss says this, there's no call for forgiveness of others like in Luke. There's no concern expressed for his mother like in John. There's no offer of salvation to the repentant criminal like in Luke. There's no final words of assurance that he will soon be in God's presence and no triumphant cry of achievement. It is finished. Mark simply includes this one saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I'll just go ahead and tell you, I struggled <laughs> right here. And I, I told Brandon this morning in a text, I, I don't think I've struggled over a sermon more than this passage right here. This is a difficult passage before us today. And so the question is, why is he saying this? What is Jesus experiencing in this moment? And Matthew and Mark record this terrible cry, but neither tells us exactly what is happening in this moment. Thanks, Matt. Uh, they just leave it. And so, but we know from Mark's gospel there's some textual things that we can look back on that informs our understanding here. Remember that Jesus expressly prayed, if there's another way to accomplish salvation without bearing the wrath of God, may it happen. Remember Gethsemane? Mark 14, verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Or recall that Jesus said he was going to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or at the Last Supper, Jesus said his blood would be poured out to bring the new covenant. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many. But if we go to Paul, we see even more detail about what could possibly be occurring inside Jesus in this moment. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or as Carly read earlier, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
And so writers have pointed out that Jesus doesn't just experience the physical pain of death on a cross. He experiences psychological and spiritual weight. The weight of bearing God's wrath within his soul. And it's completely necessary. Listen to John Calvin here. If Christ had died only a bodily, physical death, it would have been ineffectual. Unless his soul shared in the punishment, he would have been the redeemer of bodies alone. He has to redeem us to the uttermost. And this, you know, this past week I was talking even with Brother Andy and Gray about you know, what exactly is going on in, inside him. And perhaps he's even feeling what it is like when sinners sin. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21, the language, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus is becoming a sin offering for us. And maybe, maybe this entails the crummy, awful, and estranged feeling of sin that we experience. I mean, think about when, as a believer, when you sin, you feel awful. We sin and we even feel forsaken or abandoned in the world. I mean, sin causes us to feel like we're cosmic orphans. And that the clouds have veiled our view of God's face. And so what do we see here? The wrath of God poured out on the Son of God so the enemies of God can become the children of God. But I want to correct something. Is Jesus giving up his faith in this moment? Some have suggested that Jesus thought he was ushering in the kingdom, bringing in the new heavens and the new earth, and he turns out to be wrong. And this leads him to utter despair. Another writer went as far as to say Jesus had to experience God-forsakenness as a fundamental aspect of the world. He had to learn that there is no loving and providential care in the world, and he has to give up his faith just like we all do. And that, in a word, my friends, is demonic. Jesus is not giving up his faith in this moment. And we know this. How do we know this? Look at what he says. He addresses God in personal terms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus told his followers that his death would be according to God's plan. Isaiah 53 4 through 6, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And then listen to what Jesus says to his disciples before the cross. John chapter 10, verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Or John 16, 31 through 32. Remember, we're correcting the idea that Jesus is giving up his faith. Jesus answered them, Do you believe now? Verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, 
and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. So Jesus is not giving up his faith. And yet he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so the billion dollar question is how is Jesus forsaken in this moment? How is Jesus forsaken in this moment? And the answer, I think, is Jesus has not been protected by God from the wicked and sinful actions of men. He is experiencing deep persecution, torture, and heinous acts, and God is not preventing it. God is not stopping it. Death is coming quickly for the Son of God, and He is not being spared the pain of it. I mean, listen to Jesus in Matthew 26, 53 and 54. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus said at any point, 12 legions of angels can sweep in here and rescue me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. I think about the story of Genesis. Abraham, God makes a covenant. I will make you a blessing to the nations. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore. You'll have a son. 14 years later, God makes good on that promise. And he brings about Isaac, the son of promise. Remember this? And Abraham is overjoyed. Sarah is overjoyed. But later, when the child is older, in Genesis 22, God tests Abraham. And he requests that Abraham be willing to sacrifice his beloved son on the mountain. And they go up that mountain. And Isaac says at one point, Father, I, I see the wood and fire, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And they get up on that mountain. Abraham binds his own son. And the moment arrives. The knife is above his beloved son. Abraham's faith is tested. And he's about to pay the ultimate cost. And at the last moment, God intervenes. Listen to Genesis 22, 11 through 14. Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here am I. And God said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. And, as he, and he said on that day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Brothers and sisters, a few thousand years later, Jesus is bound and the knife is above him. But God does not intervene. He does not prevent the sacrifice. He does not stop wicked men from doing what they will to his beloved son. Jesus is forsaken by God over to the schemes of Satan and sinful men, even to the point of death. 
And I want, I want to point out, he's, he's quoting scripture. And what scripture? Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And if you know the context of Psalm 22, David's being persecuted. He's being mocked. He's being jeered. They, they take his garments from him. They beat him. They abuse him. And he experiences deep pain and even feels the seeming absence of God. But the psalm ends on trust. Listen to Psalm twenty-two, twenty-one: Save me from the mouth of the lion. Here's the good part. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Or twenty-two, twenty-four: For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And so David Garland notes, Mark tells us that when Jesus cried out, it was the ninth hour the Jewish hour of prayer, and Jesus prayed the prayer of a righteous sufferer who trusts fully in God's protection. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me to this? And then what do, what do the original hearers experience? What do the bystanders think? And so they literally either mishear Jesus and believe he's calling for Elijah to come help, or they're intentionally mocking him yet again. You know, the Jews around this time believed that Elijah would come to those who were in distress and he would appear before the great day of the Lord. Elijah was like the, the patron saint of protection. And so I think that they want Jesus to do something miraculous yet again. Call for your buddy Elijah. Dance for us. Even in the end, they miss who is hanging there upon a tree and they misunderstand why he is hanging on that tree. These scoffers want to see something, but they reveal themselves to be those who can see absolutely nothing. So that's the sixth scene. Now look at the seventh scene. It's all up from here, brothers and sisters. Praise the Lord. <laughs> scene seven. Jesus dies, and the curtain rips in two. Jesus dies, and the curtain rips in two. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so what happens in this moment? So Mark does not tell us what Jesus cries. But we know it has to be something positive because of the response of the centurion. And so it's likely that he cries what we see in John. It is finished. And at this point, in, you know, in crucifixion, Victims don't have the ability to cry out anything with a loud voice. And so what this shows is Jesus is in complete control of his life and even the moment when his life has ended. And what happens to that temple veil? This was the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place in the temple. And only the great high priest was allowed to enter it once a day on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifices for the people of Israel. The curtain was literally as thick as your hand, made of blue, purple, and scarlet wool, and it said that it was so heavy that it took over a hundred priests to hang it. Wow. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says, you know, what was imprinted on it made it mimic the universe. And then it's ripped from top to bottom. So what does it mean? God's judgment upon the temple has begun. 
And this holy place is now nothing but brick and mortar. And the glory of God cannot be restrained behind the physical walls of Jerusalem ever again. Secondly, the old order of things are past. No more priests, no more sacrifices, no more physical temples in Jerusalem. The types and shadows have now given way to the reality of Christ's coming. It was all meant to point to him. Behold the Lamb of God who is taking the sin of the world. And then listen to this. We now have access to the very presence of God. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so God is saying the gate is wide open, the door is unlocked, and swinging with a sign that says, come on in. It isn't a system of redemption you need, it is a redeemer, and he's done what you cannot do. Take your shoes off, put your coat away, and enjoy the unending bliss of God, his very presence right now. The temple is ripped in two. And lastly, the last scene, scene number eight. Jesus dies and the Gentile centurion confesses. Jesus dies and the Gentile centurion confesses. Look at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Truly this man was the son of God. And I want to convey how astounding this confession is. And so... He's a Roman soldier. He's in charge of other soldiers. He likely had an active role in the torture, the mocking, and the heinous death of Jesus. Yet, hearing Jesus utter his final words touched him. And it pricked his heart. And he confesses the truth about Jesus Christ. And this, this right here serves as a bookend to the Gospel of Mark. So if you remember Brandon's sermon ages ago, when we were looking at Jesus' baptism, remember this? Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. Verse 10, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. The Greek word is schizo. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The heavens tear open, and then a divine confession... This is the beloved son. And then in, at the end, at the crucifixion, the temple schizos. It rips from top to bottom. And then what do you hear? A divine confession. Truly, this is the son of God. You see that? And again, Psalm 22 is likely in the mind of the reader. This Gentile responding is the beginning of the nations flooding into the kingdom. Psalm 22, 27 all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. This is the beginning of all the families of the earth worshiping before him. And the answer, at least in part, to the question of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is right there with that Gentile getting saved at the foot of that cross. Truly this man was the Son of God. 
Jesus drank from the cup of wrath that we may drink from the never-ending cup of his salvation. The nations are flooding into the kingdom. And so what do we do with this this morning, brothers and sisters? So four things. Number one, no situation is too dark for God to be present within. No situation is too dark for God to be present within. Listen to David Garland. Amid human hatred and violence, God may seem to be absent. But never was God more fully and forcefully present than when Jesus died on the cross. God is not an abandoning God. Listen to the way Paul talks about the crucifixion, 2 Corinthians 5, 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. No situation is too dark for God to be present within. I, I know many of you know this. Corey Tim Boom's sister, listen to this quote. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. With Jesus, even in our darkest moments, the best remains and the very best is yet to come. Lean on them. Rest in him. Trust in him. Don't deny in the dark what he said in the light. Even in our darkest moments, where is the Lord? Right there with us. Secondly, we have full access to God's presence now. We have full access to God's presence now. I don't need the five pillars of Islam. I don't need the eightfold path of Buddha. I don't need more good karma in my spiritual bank account. I don't need to obey the 613 laws of the Old Testament. I don't need to be baptized into the Mormon religion. I don't need to join the 144,000 that the Jehovah's Witness think that are going to heaven. I don't even need to do any sacraments. I don't need a system of redemption because I have a redeemer and the veil has been ripped in two. Do you understand that? Don't go back into the outer courts of the temple when the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the treasures of treasures has invited you into the most holy of holies through the death of Jesus. Don't go back. We go humbly, brothers and sisters, but we come audaciously into the presence of Christ because of what Jesus did for us. We have full access to God's presence now. Third takeaway. Our hope, our security, and our eternity hinges upon the cross. He is there for us. He is identifying with us. He is being willing. He is willing to be seen with us. You know, we always talk about political scandals. There ain't no scandal. No scandal as great as Jesus being willing to be seen with me. And yet there he is. We will never be forsaken. Because he was cut off, we will never be cut off. We will never lose the love of God. You will never be cast away. You will never lose the unending radiance of his smile upon you. We will never not be blessed by God because of Jesus. Mark Jones says, My God, my God, why have you blessed me? Is a phrase only possible for us because of Christ's words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're blessed. 
and we will never lose it. And lastly, probably the most challenging, let the cross melt your pride. Let the cross melt your pride. Listen to what Jesus describes as what it means to follow him. Mark 8, 34 and 35. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose his life, will, will, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Spurgeon here. He stripped off first one robe of honor and then another until naked he was fastened to the cross. There he emptied his inmost self, pouring out his lifeblood, giving himself for all of us. Finally, they laid him in a borrowed grave. How low was our dear Redeemer brought? How then can we be proud? Stand at the foot of the cross and count the scarlet drops by which you have been cleansed. See the thorny crown and his scourged shoulders still gushing with the crimson flow of blood. See his hands and feet given up to the rough iron and his whole self mocked and scorned. See the bitterness, the pains, and the throes of inward grief show themselves in his outward frame. And hear the chilling shriek, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you are not humbled... In the presence of Jesus, you do not know him. You were so lost that nothing could save you but the sacrifice of God's only begotten son. And Jesus stooped for you. Bow now in humility at his feet. A realization of Christ's amazing love has a greater tendency to humble us than even a consciousness of our own guilt. Pride cannot live beneath the cross. Let us sit there and learn our lesson. Then let us rise and carry it into practice. Let the cross melt your pride. We close with the words of Galatians. Galatians 6, 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's pray. Lord, melt our pride this morning. God, help us to see that you were made nothing, that we may be made everything in you. And God, help us now, because of that, enjoy your presence. And help us not to flee in pride back into the outer courts, but come audaciously into your presence and sing your glory. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and him dying for us. And Lord, we pray that we would live unto you and we would serve you and we would have our joy and our hope and our security and all of that, our identity in you and you alone. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty and precious name.